following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, page 836. Bible's in front of you. Good to see you today. Let me give you a quick update kind of on the schedule that we're going to have over the next uh, few weeks here. We're going to obviously be in Mark 1 today in the prologue, continuing to work through that. We will do that again next Sunday. We'll actually finish the prologue next Sunday, and then I'm taking three weeks off, all right? So uh, on the 21st, as you know, Jared and Sharon just got back from Indonesia, and uh, we were praying for them and talking about that trip while they were gone. And we haven't given them an opportunity yet to share that trip with us. And so on the 21st, that's what they're going to do. We're going to give the whole service over to a missions focus. And so they're going to show us their trip, what they did, what they saw. They're going to hear from uh, Jonathan and Sarah. They brought back some videos and things we want to hear from them from their own lips. And then we're going to ask Jared to challenge us around the area of missions. It's an area he's very passionate about. And so we want to hear from him and let him challenge us with that. So that's the 21st. And the next two weeks, I'm just on vacation, and I don't know what's happening those weeks. So just show up, and uh, you'll see who's here. I'm not sure who it'll be. And I'm not even really joking with that. The way we worked it this time was we uh, told Jordan he was responsible for one Sunday, and Chris that he was responsible for another Sunday. And they could either preach themselves, or they could get someone else to preach. But whatever the case, they were responsible. And so I just taken my hands off completely and said, I'm leaving. Bye. Have fun. When we get back, we'll hear what happens. So... You're in Mark chapter 1. Let's look at these first 13 verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1 begins, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for this time just to focus on who you are. It's so easy in our world, and for those of us particularly who have grown up in churches, to believe that we really understand you because we've heard your name so much and we've heard so many sermons and lessons. Unfortunately, it feels very often like you're just a a figurehead, an image on a poster, someone we have seen from afar but don't really understand or know, but we feel very familiar with you. John doesn't want that for us. Mark doesn't want that for us. He wants us to, to really understand you. And so we are coming and we are spending time here trying to get that understanding, trying to see you 
in all your glory as not just some man from Nazareth of Galilee, but as the very Son of God come to earth. And so we come again today trying to understand that, trying to see all the many facets of that, what that means, what that means for you, what it means for the story we're reading, and and what it means for us in our lives today. And so we come and we ask your help. We ask that you will open our, our closed eyes, that you will help our dead hearts to see that we will get a glimpse of you and recognize all that we have in you like we never have before. That's what we want. And so we come, we give our hearts, we give this time to you. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've uh, described in the past my process for studying sermon for sermons, um, I think probably on two different occasions. I want to do it again today, partially because I think it's good to repeat every now and then for new people who come in, but also because sometimes there's good reasons to do it. Uh, normally when I am studying for a sermon, I, I focus first on the larger section of Scripture that we happen to be in at the moment. And that's something I hope you have gotten to understand about us, generally speaking, here. We try to give real attention to those larger sections of Scripture. That's why we read them week after week. Remember, I just talked about that a couple weeks ago. We read them week after week because we really want to keep everything in its proper context. And and that's not just something we do publicly when I'm up here. That's something that I do privately as well. Normally, my very first week of study in a passage is doing that larger study of the entire section. I I have likened it in the past to doing a 10,000-foot flyby where all I'm really trying to do is just kind of get a, a general idea of the terrain. I want to see the features that are involved. I want to understand some of the components that are coming up and really get my, my mind wrapped around the flow and the general content of the entire section. And normally at this point, I will do a little bit of light reading, a little bit of light research. Again, just trying to get that big picture view. But I don't do anything in depth at that point. That waits you know, as we work through it week by week, I come back into those sections and spend more time going word by word, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, trying to really understand it in detail. And while thankfully, most of the time, that second pass through merely confirms what I saw in my first pass, every now and then, I, I come to realize that in I, when I made that first pass, that 10,000 foot flyby, I didn't understand something correctly, or maybe I just didn't understand it fully, or maybe I completely botched it. And then, unfortunately, I have to come back up here to you and confess that and say, hey, guess what? I made a mistake, which I don't particularly enjoy. I'll be honest with you about it. But I'm thankful for when that happens for two main reasons. One, it's a good reminder that, that pastors don't know everything. All right, we're, we're just human. We make mistakes and fail like everybody else. And any pastor you ever have uh, here, Jordan's bad for this, but here or anywhere else, that says or pretends or, or presents like they have everything nailed down perfectly and never make any mistakes, mark that person as a liar, okay? Because they're not perfect. They're, they're a sinner just like the rest of us. Two, I like it because when we say that Jesus Christ and the scriptures are supreme, it has to be over everything, even over our own pride or our own you know, public images, et cetera, et cetera. So as you have no doubt surmised by this point, I'm saying all this because I need to go back and fix something. All right. 
Something that I have been saying now for about three or four weeks that when I was studying through this week, I began to realize, oh, wait, I, I kind of messed up on something and I want to make a correction. As we've been working through Mark's prologue here, I have been using a particular sentence to encapsulate the overall content of this prologue. The sentence I've been using is this, that here in these verses, Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-anointed, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. I came to that conclusion, and when I made that 10,000-foot flyby, I thought that I was as accurate as I could be. But in studying this week, I began to realize that I need to change one word. And it's going to seem insignificant to you at first, perhaps, but I promise you it is more significant than it looks. I need to change the word anointed to the word bringing. That Jesus is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-bringing, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. Again, it looks perhaps insignificant at this moment, but it is more significant than you think. Today we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11, the story here of Jesus' baptism by John. And last Sunday, we learned that the reason why Mark begins his story with this crazy Judean preacher who's wearing camel's hair and eating locusts out in the wilderness, the reason why he begins his story with this guy John the Baptist is because he sees John as the fulfillment, as the completion of this cliffhanger from the Old Testament. There in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, part of this passage that John, or excuse me, Mark, he wouldn't call it John. Mark wants to quote here at the beginning, we read that uh, God saying this to his people, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his people and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. If you keep reading through Malachi, you go a little further down into chapter 4, you find out who this messenger is who is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then silence. The Old Testament simply ends with this promise that, that Elijah is coming. And even as Malachi is writing those words, Elijah's been dead for years. And so you're left wondering how. How is this going to be? How is this going to be fulfilled? Is Elijah going to come back from the dead? Is it going to be someone like Elijah? What's going to happen? How are we going to know when this guy comes? And so Mark just simply picks up the story from that point by introducing to us this man who is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, John the Baptist. Everything that Mark tells us about John shows us that he is this Elijah character that Israel was expecting from his location to his activity to his message to his clothing to his diet. Everything about him shows he is Elijah. And Jesus himself will confirm that for us in just a bit as we get through the story. But, but even though John is the introduction to Mark's story, I th hope you see... <laughs> He doesn't, uh, he's certainly not the focus of the story. He introduces him to you and then it's just like, all right, verse 9, let's leave John and go on to Jesus. Because this is the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of John. And so we go as quickly as possible to Jesus. Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 show us that the purpose of this messenger, the purpose of John the Baptist is not to draw attention to himself. The purpose of the messenger is to prepare the way. John himself will later say, I think it's in John chapter 3, I must decrease, but he must what? 
increase. He, he understands about himself that he's not the focus. He's merely the one who comes first to prepare the way for this coming day of the Lord. And so in respect of that and because of that, Mark moves very quickly from John to Jesus. It's time to introduce him to us. And so in verses 9 through 11, Jesus enters the story for the very first time. And here's how Mark introduces him. In those days, while John is doing his baptizing and preaching out in the wilderness, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And these were the verses that when I flew over them in my initial study, I I understood them to be referring to the fact that Jesus' ministry, Jesus himself and his ministry, were anointed by the Holy Spirit, as if God is confirming that this is my son and this is what he's going to do and everything he says and does from this point on you need to listen to. And all of that is true. It's just not enough. There's more to what you see here than what I initially understood, which is why I changed the word. Throughout this prologue, Mark has been trying to show us who Jesus is. This is a passage about the true identity of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's that word identity that became the central focus of my study this week and where I want to show you why I changed the word. I want to show you four identifications here in this passage that will help us understand Jesus better and, and will help us understand, our, understand ourselves better as well. First, let's look at how Jesus identified himself with man here in this introduction to him. Very first time we see him, he's, intru- he's identifying himself with man. We need to begin by asking a very, very, very important question. Why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever thought about that? Here's John out in the wilderness, and he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Remember that in John's day, there's only two reasons why you're going to be baptized. It's either because, A, you are a Gentile who wants to convert to Judaism. In other words, you're not one of God's people, and you want to become one of God's people. And so in order to become one of God's chosen people, you go through all the stuff that proselytes had to go through, and the last step is baptism, and Ta-da! Now you're one of God's people. So that might be one reason why you're baptized is to become of one, one of God's people. The second reason why you might be baptized is because you're, you're sinful, you're, you're impure, you're unclean. And so to undo that, you go through baptism as an as a act of ritual purification so that you can go and participate in whatever it is that you want to participate in. When John is out there in the wilderness, he's not saying, look, Gentiles, come be baptized for the repentance or forgiveness of sins. He's not saying, hey, look, all of you who see yourselves as unclean, come be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, hey, all Israel, everyone from the high priest down to the lowest, everybody, come be baptized, repent, confess your sins for the, for the forgiveness of sins. He's He's telling God's people, you're not God's people. He's telling all of them together, you're unclean. You all need to repent. John's baptism is called a baptism of repentance, which is why I ask the question, why then is Jesus being baptized? Does he need to repent? 
Does he have any sins that he needs to confess so that he can become one of God's people? Well, the answer to both of those questions is obviously no. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He is uh, the, the perfect son of Abraham. So why then would he come to, to, to be baptized by John? Well, as I was studying this week, I came to understand the answer to that question is not being so much about the baptism itself. I think we get, we get bogged down looking at the baptism and trying to figure out what the baptism was about. I think the answer was more about how Jesus in this act is identifying himself with mankind. I'll show it to you in three ways. One, he's identifying himself with the ministry and message of John the Baptist. As he comes to John and participates in what John is doing, he is affirming and confirming for all the people and for us as readers that what John is preaching and teaching in the wilderness is true. That he is the Elijah. He is the fulfillment of Malachi. And the reason Mark shows us the quick connection between Jesus and John is so that you understand that the day of the Lord is coming. That's why Elijah was coming, was it not? To prepare the way of the day of the Lord. Make his path straight. Here comes Jesus taking the baton. John had taken it from, from Malachi. And now Jesus comes and takes it from John. And he's ready to go. The ministry is ready to begin. As soon as we get to verse 14, what is Jesus' message? Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he's, he's ready to go. So in coming to John, Jesus identifies himself with his message. Number two, by being baptized, Jesus is identifying himself with Israel, with God's people. There's a lot of, a lot of imagery here in this prologue, more then I have time to develop. I've been a little taken aback by how much is here. Just a couple of quick examples. Next week, we're talking about his, his temptation. We're going to ask the question, why did he spend 40 days in the wilderness, hungry, tempted, and in danger? Well, without giving away too much on that, I'll simply say that it reminds me an awful lot of Israel spending 40 years in the wilderness, tempted, hungry, and in danger. Jesus coming down to the Jordan here, I think, is another example of the imagery. Just as the nation began its time in the promised land by passing through the Jordan, Jesus here begins his public ministry by passing through the Jordan. But, but what struck me the most of all is how Jesus is the very thing that John is calling the people to be. He, he is the God-fearing, law-keeping, true son of Abraham that no other Israelite could ever be. And so as he comes, I think his coming to John in this way is a way of identifying himself with God's chosen people as the true Israel. As the very thing that John's ministry was, was aiming at as the fulfillment of everything that God wanted his people to be. But there's a third way I think he identifies with man here. It's by, by being baptized. Jesus is identifying himself with all humanity. With all humanity in this act. And again, again, I come back to the imagery. Think, of, think about Genesis 1. Okay, if you were here for our Genesis study, go back to Genesis 1. And how does Genesis 1 begin, this initial act of God's creation? You have the Spirit hovering over the waters, and you have God's voice breaking into to this world to begin. And what do you see here at this very moment? As Jesus is coming up out of the Jordan, the Spirit is over the waters, and God's voice is speaking again. 
And for the very first time since that initial creation, we have a perfect man on earth once more. God's act of recreation is happening right here in front of us as a perfect man representing all humanity, representing what mankind was supposed to be, is now on the scene. We have here an identification of Jesus, I believe, with with all humanity. So as you take all of that together, here's what you see. That in coming to John for baptism, Jesus is identifying himself, first of all, with this messenger— who's preparing the way with the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had promised. He's, he's identifying himself as being the true Israel, the true people of God, and he's identifying himself as the second Adam, the, the perfect man that we were, we were supposed to be. All of these concepts will be taken later by the gospel writers and the New Testament writers and expanded upon and explained more. I think you see all of them in one way or another here in this first identification. Second, second, let's look at how God identified himself then with Jesus. So Jesus comes and identifies himself with us. God then identifies himself with Jesus. Mark tells us that when Jesus is coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open. He sees the spirit descending on him like a dove. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And again, we need to ask the question, why? Why does he see and hear these things? And even more importantly, why did God have Mark record them for us? Did Jesus not know he was God's son? Is that why it's happening? No, that's not it. Did did Jesus not have the spirit before this moment? Well, no, that, that can't be it either. And so whatever's happening here is not happening so much for Jesus' benefit as it is happening for ours. God is showing us something here about his relationship with Jesus that is above and beyond just the the events happening there in the scene. He's identifying himself. He does it in two main ways. First, God identifies himself with this man, Jesus, through the presence of his spirit. So Jesus has this vision, right? We're not sure how many other people saw it. It's kind of hard to tell as you read the different accounts of everyone standing around saw and heard the same thing. The only thing we know is that John the Baptist saw it. In John chapter 1, verses 32 and 34, we read, uh, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me, God, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John sees this descent of the Spirit on Jesus. And when he sees this happen, he knows. He knows that this is the one for whom he has been preparing, that this is the one about whom he has preached. He told people that he was baptizing with water, but the guy is coming, someone's coming who is mightier than him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is that guy. Now, for you and I, when we hear John say that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't really strike us, I think. For a number of reasons, none of which I have the time to develop this morning. But, but for John's hearers, they would have understood exactly what John was referring to and why Jesus coming to baptize in the Spirit is so significant. Remember, remember that coming day of the Lord that, that Malachi talked about? 
how Elijah's going to come before the, the day of the Lord. He's coming to prepare the way. Well, um, that, that's kind of a big subject. The coming day of the Lord was going to bring about many things, many changes, many blessings. And one of the blessings that it was going to bring about was an outpouring of God's Spirit like had never happened before. Not just on a few select individuals who were serving God in some special way, but on all of God's people. The Spirit was going to come. Ezekiel talks about it numerous times. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you're an Israelite who is living under the law and, and you understand how difficult it is to obey and you see this promise that a day is coming when God will put his spirit in you so that you can finally obey and live for him, would you at all be excited about that? Uh, Ezekiel 37, 14, next chapter. God says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord, Ezekiel 39. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Joel talks about it as well. This is the very first passage that Peter preaches from in Acts chapter 2, right after the day of Pentecost. Joel's talking about this in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. He says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, everybody in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The coming of the spirit means that the coming of God to his people that he promised, it's at hand. It's at hand. If he's coming to baptize with the spirit, God's coming. The, the spirit's coming. The kingdom is coming. All the wrongs are going to be made right. All Israel will perfectly know and love God like they should. This, this is huge. And so the Spirit's descent on Jesus here doesn't mean that he didn't have the Spirit before. People say that. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. It's God's way of showing us that this man, Jesus, is the one who is bringing the Spirit with him just as had been promised. That's why I changed the word. Because it's not just that he's being anointed by the Spirit for ministry. This is ushering in something completely new. This coming of the Spirit is an indication that God's people will now be able to have a different relationship with God than they've ever had before. That's the first way God identifies himself with Jesus. The second way that God does it is through the pronouncement of his word. So he sees the Spirit descend and he hears a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father affirms Jesus' divinity, divinity, he calls him his son, and he affirms Jesus' perfect sinless nature, the perfect man, by saying that he is well pleased with him. He is God, he is perfect man, listen to my son. And even though you, you've probably already, you know, realize this by now. Let me just point out to you that this is one of the clearest, clearest examples of the Trinity you're going to see in the New Testament. As God the Son is coming out of the water, God the Father is speaking, and God the Spirit is descending. You, you have all of it here in one. God's voice and Spirit have dramatically broken into the world to identify with this man, 
Jesus of Nazareth. And so here we are, two out of four. And we're already done with our verses, okay? <laughs> Where are the other two identifications? Because I said there's four of them, and, and I think there are. And the reason that I came up with two extra beyond what you see immediately here in the text is because as I was meditating on this and coming to understand the, all the identification that's going on here is Jesus is, is by his grace and his kindness, identifying himself with us and how God is sovereignly identifying himself with the Son, I began to ask the question, well, what about us? Where, where are we fitting into this picture? And I realized there are two more identifications that come out of this. Third, let's consider then how we identify with Jesus. If Jesus is taking the time to identify with us and God is identifying with Jesus, how do... How do we then work this backwards? How, does, how do we identify with, with Jesus? And immediately as I was asking that question, two things came to mind. Number one, through faith and repentance. Number two, through baptism. Does that sound familiar at all? First, we identify with Jesus through faith and repentance. And why am I, you say those are, um, I'm not sure if you're counting right, those are two things, not one. Well, the reason they're, they're one is because throughout the New Testament, these are basically two, two sides of the same coin. They're, they're never separated. You cannot genuinely believe and not repent any more than you can genuinely repent without believing. Okay? You cannot separate these concepts. They, they go together. If you choose to believe in Jesus, then you are making a decision to abandon your old life in exchange for a new one. And if you're not willing to do that, then guess what? You don't really believe. <laughs> you don't really understand who Jesus is. You don't really understand the gospel. Faith and repentance are inseparable in the New Testament. And oftentimes, the words can be used interchangeably. In fact, here, pause from this. I mentioned Acts 2. I mentioned Peter's first sermon. At the end of his first sermon, he, he's been preaching about who Jesus is. He's talking to all these Jews in Jerusalem, and, and they're convicted. They're convicted, and they say, what shall we do? And you know what his answer is? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And there are groups that take that one verse, one verse, and they say, well, see, you don't have to believe. You just have to change your life and be baptized. You know, just do all these things and you can, be, you can be saved. And they pay no attention to the fact that just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is with Cornelius, he gets done presenting the gospel to him and then he tells him, hey, believe and be baptized. Wait, wait, wait did the crowd not need to believe? Because maybe they already believed and they just didn't live a good life. They just need to repent. Whereas Cornelius, Cornelius lives a good life. He, he doesn't need to repent. He just needs to believe. no. The words are, are connected. The, the concepts go together. You can't separate them. And so he can sometimes say, repent. And the understanding is you're repenting because you're believing. And sometimes he'll say, believe with the understanding that you're going to repent. The, the ideas are inseparable in his mind. They're inseparable throughout the New Testament. We have been called both to believe and to live differently. And so in order to identify ourselves with Jesus, we, we have to believe, right? We have to believe he's a savior, that we are sinners in need of saving. It doesn't make sense to call him a savior if you're not a sinner. <laughs> if you, don't need a, if you, you have no need of saving, you don't need a savior. You believe that you're a sinner. You, you believe that God is holy and that our sin separates us from him. You believe that Jesus, through that perfect life he lived, 
was able to be the sacrifice that we could never be, you believe, have to believe that on the cross, God takes our sins and places them on his son and then pours all of his wrath and anger out on him, not us. You have to believe that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, forever defeating sin and death. In order to, to, to believe, to identify ourselves with Jesus, we have to believe that he is the Savior. We have to believe that he's the Christ, God's anointed. We have to believe that he's the Son of God. And we have to change our lives. We have to repent, live differently. It's not that we're earning our salvation through our lifestyle. It's simply that you can't divide the two. If you really believe that Jesus is all these things, that you are a sinner, then you will change. It is through faith and repentance that we first identify with Jesus. But now watch this. What does he call us to do next? Well, second, he calls us to identify with him through baptism. It's part of the very great commission. As Jesus is leaving, he says to them, Go, therefore, make disciples, all the nations, baptizing them. Why doesn't he say, like, and observing the Lord's table or, um, you know, giving <laughs> or Sunday school attendance? Why, does it, why is it just baptism? Well, it's because baptism is a way of showing who we identify with. We identify with Jesus. It, it signifies the, the leaving of something old and the beginning of something new, of a new path, a new goal, a new Lord that's why baptism is more than just a ritual where you, you get wet. It's a deeply significant act that God expects those who identify themselves with Jesus to participate in. And so through faith and repentance, through baptism, we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But now finally, get this, let's consider how God the Father then identifies himself with us through his Son. You see, once, once you've identified yourself with Jesus... The Father looks at us differently. Every person, you, most of you know this, but just to be clear, every person on earth has a spiritual identity, every single one. Paul in Ephesians 2 shows us our, our identity before Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I want you to notice two specific things in this identity. One, notice that we are specifically called sons. Sons. We are sons of disobedience. Biblically speaking, to be the son of something means that you're identified with it. Okay, so Jesus is the son of God. That means he's identified with God. To call us sons of disobedience is to highlight our rebellion against God. This is who we were. God is identifying us, identified us as his enemies. Two, notice that there is a spirit involved. Before Jesus, when we were dead in our sins, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's that? Well, it's a, a spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a spiritual being who directed our steps, who controlled our life, and who was leading us from death to death. Now, that was our identity before Jesus. What happens then when we, through faith and repentance, identify ourselves with God's Son? Well, watch what happens. First, our identity changes through the pronouncement of God's Word. Listen to what Paul writes here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, sinners, sons of disobedience, rebels, might receive adoption as sons. We become God's sons. He adopts us. And the adoption part is kind of important because we're not the son of God like Jesus is. We're not divine. We're adopted in, okay? We are adopted as sons, but we are sons nonetheless. We go from being enemies to being his children, all through the pronouncement of his word. Do you see the similarity with Mark 1? Just like God the Father pronounces over his son, you are my son, he pronounces over every person who believes in him, you are my son. 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 I've adopted you. You're now mine because I have said it. That, that, you know, that he calls Jesus his son makes sense. Jesus deserves it. That he calls us sons is grace. Grace. We don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve to be declared his sons. We, we deserve to be, to be rejected by him. And yet what does he do? He, he calls us holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight all because of our identity in Jesus. So he, he, we're becoming his sons. He, he changes our identity by the pronouncement of his word. Second, he identifies with us, guess what? By the presence of his spirit. So just like in Mark 1, we see the spirit present as God is identifying himself with his son. He does the same for us here in Galatians. Paul's not done. He goes on to say this, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave. You're now a son. And if a son, you're an heir through God. He, he gives us His Spirit. Before Jesus came, I don't know if you know this or not, but as you look in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the Spirit didn't indwell people. He came on people for acts of ministry and service, but the whole reason they were excited about the coming of Elijah and the coming day of the Lord is because of what you read in Ezekiel and Joel. They were looking forward to a day when the Spirit would go to everybody. You don't see that in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes up out of the waters and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, that is the beginning of a new age. A new age. The day of the Lord has begun, and now Everyone whom God declares to be his son receives his spirit as part of what makes us sons of God. When we identify ourselves with Jesus, God identifies himself with us by making us his sons and giving us his spirit. Now, that, that was why I felt the need to change that word. Because it's more than just about, Jesus' baptism is more than just about him being anointed by the spirit for ministry. Okay? It is that, but it's way more than that. It's the beginning of a new age. It's, it's showing us that the one who was going to bring God's spirit is here. Something that will forever change the way we relate to God. It's here. And, and if you're here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus and you've repented of your sins, I want you to leave today rejoicing. God has called you his son. He, he's called you his son just like he called Jesus his son. He doesn't look at you anymore and go, well, I don't like this, this, and this. He's, he's sinned against me in that, that, and that way, and she's not that great, and he's not that good. And He doesn't look at you that way anymore. 
Because you have identified with his son, he now calls you his son. You're adopted. You're adopted. You can call him Abba, Father, Jesus. I I almost put this up here. Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's on his knees, and he's praying to the Father. It's a moment of, of intimacy between Father and Son. He looks up, and he uses those same words, Abba, Father. Paul says in Galatians, we can use those words. We are just like Jesus in God's eyes because of his death on our behalf. We are sons. He's given us his spirit. It's proof. There's no condemnation. There's no more fear, no more wrath. God in his grace has made us his sons through his sons, and he will love us forevermore. If you're here today, though, and you're not a believer, and you've never put your faith in him, you've never repented, you've never changed, your life looks today just like it looked Before you came to Jesus, nothing's changed. Then today is a day to get a new identity. It's a day to get a new identity, to stop living in rebellion and disobedience, to stop being a son of that spirit and become a son of of God through, through his son who died for us. Jesus has brought the spirit to man. The day of the Lord has begun, and it is time for everyone to choose their identity. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we see so clearly what it is you are doing here. This is not just a, an act of baptism as if you needed to repent of your sins, you needed to confess. This is, this is the beginning of something new. You're going you're gonna to walk out of these waters, go into the wilderness and come back and immediately you're going to begin to preach the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's the message that we proclaim today, that your kingdom is indeed at hand. It is time to repent and believe. And for those in here this morning who have done those very things, they now stand as sons in your presence, adopted forevermore. Not because they deserve it, not because they're worthy of it, because you and your love and grace have chosen to adopt them, to make them your own by faith. And for those in here this morning who have never believed, have never repented, they too have an identity. But you are calling them today to change it. To to bow their knees in faith, to change, to repent of their sins, to embrace a new life that only you can give. You have opened the door. It is time for them to decide what they will do. And so, Lord, I ask that for those in here who have never made that decision, that you will make them miserable. Help them to see their sin and to understand their need until they come and bow that need before you. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of this message. We, we stand as those who can tell the world you can be reconciled with God. He's offering a way. He will adopt you. Help us to be faithful in that. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We see it. We don't deserve it. But we see it, we understand it, and we thank you for it this morning. It's all in your son's name. Because of him that we can come and call you Abba. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.